The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Today I spoke with director Muhammad, or Mo, Ali Nakvi, about his film, The Accused, Damned or Devoted. This is a story of a modern-day inquisition, if you will, or the Salem Witch Trials, which is another example I like to use. The film centers around a law called the Blasphemy Law, which is in many Muslim countries, but it's specifically, I look at what happens in Pakistan. And the Blasphemy Law basically states that if you disrespect the Prophet Muhammad or you desecrate the Quran, you can be legally put to death. And one of the big advocates for this law is this Imam, Khadim Hussein Rizwi, who is the main subject of my film and whom I follow as he runs for election and uses this law as a political mechanism to gain power. The film has been nominated for an Emmy in the category of exceptional merit in documentary filmmaking. You can see the film at worldchannel.org. If you like this conversation, please do follow us on the platform formerly known as Twitter and on Instagram at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Muhammad Ali Nakvi about the cues, damned or devoted. Mo, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your film really has a dual structure in my mind. Uh, there's a clear through line regarding the rise of the cleric Kadim Hussein Rizdi, sorry for my pronunciation, and his TLP party. And also there's an episodic focus on individual legal cases, usually regarding someone accused of blasphemy. And all this is skillfully interwoven. And on the thematic level, all that sort of levels up, I think, to a number of themes, certainly about religious intolerance in, in Pakistan, but as we noted, potentially elsewhere. But it's also really about the definition of this country, right? A country of over 230 million people, a nuclear nation bordering another huge nuclear nation that it doesn't necessarily get along with well. And you're really examining some of the competing visions of what the country has been, is, should be in a powerful way. And I think the philosophy law in many ways is an instance of that definition, a redefinition. The opening, I think, really captures a lot of this. We see a crowd gathering in Lahore, which is Pakistan's second largest city. First, it seems relatively subdued, but then the cleric, Rizvi, begins to build up the crescendo and they begin to chant and they grow more animated. And he's supporting Pakistan's philosophy laws. And he says, while the prime minister thinks this is just about votes, we're actually looking to chop some heads. Before we go too far, I do want to point out that in our own country, we do have the presumptive leader of one of our major parties who goes around regularly calling for the blood, in that case of drug dealers, but I think there's some similarities in terms of appealing to people's base motions around some form of impurity. Let's talk about the blasphemy laws just a little bit more. They really began in Pakistan in 1860 under the British rule. In 1986, relatively recently, they became more draconian. So now they're considered some of the most restrictive blasphemy laws right up there with Iran and Saudi Arabia. 
Can you talk about these laws and what they say? The blasphemy laws came into existence under British colonial rule. And it wasn't specific to blaspheming against Islam. It was actually a way to protect uh, and safeguard other religions too. However, saying that, there was even at that time some harsh penalties attached to it, such as lifetime imprisonment and whatever. But these laws relatively more recently became a lot more draconian, especially in 1986 when Ronald Reagan, American-backed dictator Ziaul Haq, was in power in Pakistan. And the death penalty was basically added to the blasphemy laws, which really gave it its teeth, which is if you blaspheme, you can be put to death. I, I always preface everyone, look, I'm a filmmaker, I'm not, not an academic, nor am I an Islamic scholar. So I certainly can be out of my depth. But what I do know is that if you want to get into theological discussions, Islamic theological discussions, for example, edict or something to pass and, and make it law, you have to have ijtima, which is a grand consensus of all the different bodies of Islamic jurisprudence, fiqh, for the Pakistani parliament to adopt it. And in 1986, if you actually look at the records, there wasn't a collective agreement on this, but it was still passed through brute force. And, and the reason I give you this context is that the blasphemy law itself and the way it's implemented, the way it's used, is hotly contested. Many people don't speak up about it or say it because of how dangerous it is. We had a governor who tried to change the laws, offer clemency to one of the subjects who's featured in my film, Asiya Bibi, the Christian woman who was given the death penalty or initially given the death penalty. It wasn't carried out. And he was, he was murdered. And his murderer was celebrated as like this savior of Islam or something, Qadri Muntaz. And uh, I can say, even getting into trying to make this film, I was really, really apprehensive because of how dangerous it was. I mean, super dangerous to make this film. I want to ask a few questions about that. But before we go there, can we talk about Rizvi and his TLP who have really embraced this law? And obviously, it stands for something bigger for them as well. But can you talk about him and, and who they are? So Khadim Hussain Rizvi is a cleric. He was a state-appointed cleric, actually. So he used to lead the prayers in a, a state-sanctioned mosque. But then since then, he left. And he, especially because of what happened with Salman Tasir, the governor of Pakistan, when he was murdered, he was let go because of his own ideology and whatever, it split from like the mainstream thing. And he started forming this informal party called the Tariq Lekpek Party. This was, I believe, in 2015, 2016 or something. It started out in a grassroots movement. And it was a political movement that had its origins, of course, in preserving the blasphemy law and preserving mostly the sanctity of the prophet and the prophet being the final prophet that came down with the final messenger of God. Of Allah. To preserve that, one of the key elements was to honor the blasphemy law. So he had a lot of support-based, grassroots space, especially from people who were largely ignored in the urban and rural areas, who came from impoverished, poor backgrounds, where, you know, elite politicians and city folk, all that, just ignored them. And they were like suffering in this horrible way. So here was this guy suddenly speaking this guy's language, where he's like, listen, I don't care. I'm not one of those. So he would even say in his like speeches, I don't care about 
do I have any expensive watches? Am I wearing any expensive clothes? If I've ever done anything for money, chop my head off right now. That's literally what he would say. And he just appealed to a vast majority of people who were largely not represented. And they aligned with him ideologically on a spiritual faith level. They also believed what he did. They supported the blasphemy law. And so that momentum and that movement kept growing. And it came to a head when in 2017, our parliament, Pakistani parliament, passed a law that was just a simple changing of the verbiage of the oath-taking ceremony, the taking oaths in parliament, just changing some of the wording. And they took out uh, a sentence. The implication of that was that it could be interpreted as blasphemous. That was basically the interpretation. It was just indirectly. And parliament had passed this. And so almost right away, these guys stormed parliament, very much like January 6th here, if you will, very comparable. They shut down parliament. They shut down the Supreme Court. They shut down all of Islamabad, our capital. And... Our government had to kowtow these, to these people. They had to actually walk back the fact that they had passed this thing. And they're like, we're sorry about that. We take it back, which is insane. It's crazy. It's like Congress or the Senate passing something, and then they're just kowtowing to people. Yeah, one thing you should point out is while their numbers of votes isn't necessarily that high, their actual influence is very deep because they will, as you say, lay siege to the Capitol for a month. And they're willing to chop heads. So they're violent and they can hold the state and ransom. I mean, the people are scared of them. And that's what they were able to do, in fact, because what happened was to placate them, not only did the state walk back what it was passing, the law minister who suggested this rewording had to resign. And then all the protesters even got like a small stipend for their troubles from the government, which was insane. I live in Karachi. But I happened to be in Islamabad at that time, and BBC Films had actually approached me to make a film on blasphemy in general. And I said no right away, because it's like insane to make a film. It's so dangerous. But then I happened to be in Islamabad, and I was stuck. And then here I saw that once again, our, our country had bowed down to this despots who were just using Islam for their own political machinations. So I had to call them out and I had to basically hold them accountable. And that's what inspired me to make this film. Just to back up for a second, you know, I think one of the things, speaking just of the filmic aspects of what you're doing here, you do a great job of playing off Rizvi versus the Prime Minister Imran Khan. As you said, Rizvi wears simple clothes, well, clothes of a cleric, but he talks about his simple clothes, his simple watch. And then we have Khan, you know, who is Oxford right. grad, international cricket star in his youth, not renowned for his devotation to Islam, but that way. Um, yes, that's the other thing. Like, you have to realize these specific figures, even though they're not necessarily like the top contenders for winning the, the electoral race or something. But the fact is, in 2018, the, the election I was following, he got about like 2.2 or 2.3 million votes. For a brand new party, a party that was like approximately was like three or four years old at that time, that is phenomenal. That's really impressive. The way it works in Pakistan is that everyone uses, just like this country, right? You use like special interest groups to rally up and drum up support and bring their followers into your fold. So Imran Khan absolutely placates these nut jobs or some of these people on the right, as does Trump, right? Right. 
to to bring them into the fold. I mean, there's a lot of actually parallel similarities between Imran Khan and Trump, and they play up that kind of uh, sensibilities. We live in such a global village, just to distill it for your viewers, which I'm assuming are all very American, like a, a lot of the big reason that Khadim Hussain Rizvi is immediately able to bring up support. Like, he can literally, for Qadri, Mumtaz Qadri, who was the murderer of the governor, he was, by the way, given the death penalty. In his funeral in Karachi, about, I don't know, a million plus, two million people came out onto the streets to pay their respects. And he's able to do that because... He has a lot of support because people do generally support him ideologically. They might not even give him a vote, for example, but they support him in this matter. So he has a lot of that support. And he really skillfully and adeptly used social media and TikTok videos, like a lot of people do, to drum up that support, you know, even if they don't necessarily believe it, which is something I've experienced in a lot of my films, even in my previous films, I, I actually make it a point to tell both sides of the stories. And what I mean by that is, even though I feature victims, I also speak to the oppressor, if you will, or, or the so-called villain, and, and tell their side of the story, just to give a more well-rounded, objective view, and, and, and avoid doing what I like to call, you know, poverty porn, satiating Western colonial gaze. Especially in the last 20 years, especially when I came of age as a filmmaker, I always wanted to be a storyteller and a filmmaker, and I moved to New York. And it was August 2001. So if you happen to be in New York post 9-11 and your name was Mohammed, it, it was such a seminal event for me because I experienced such crazy Islamophobia that it singularly informed the kinds of films I was going to make. And it led me into nonfiction. And specifically going back to my home country of Pakistan and then also looking at other stories in the Middle East, for example, to actually tell you more nuanced stories of political Islam or terrorism rather than the Bush-Cheney dynamic that existed. At the core of this, of this film clearly are the legal cases, and I do want to get into them because I think they help ground these bigger issues. Basically, there have been 1,500 cases or so since the change of the law in 1986. And you note that while non-Muslims currently constitute about 4% of Pakistan's population, so it's a very small group, they make up nearly half of the people who are accused. And I think there's a suggestion that maybe something else is going on here. Right. And so that's the other thing about the blasphemy law is that, and one of my big things of actually pushing this was that, yes, half the people who have been attacked are people from minority groups who are marginalized, whether there's Christians or Hindus, Sikhs. The other half, though, are Muslims themselves. And that's also an important distinction to make because I think when you look at the historical reporting of the blasphemy law through Western media outlets, it's always framed as a Muslims versus Christian thing, which I think mm -hmm. is deeply problematic. And I think it's also intellectually dishonest. Is there xenophobia in Pakistan? Of course there is. In fact, I'd be the first one to say there is. And that's why I make the films that I do to hold those xenophobes or those bigots accountable. But keep in mind that Beyond just that, this is also very much political in nature, right? It's also abusing those who are disenfranchised for economic power. So, for example, a lot of those cases that are against Christians, for example, are from Lahore, for example, and other communities, Christian communities, who've been targeted by land mafia who are making up false blasphemy charges on them to intimidate them 
to basically get them to give up rights to their property or land or business or whatever. These kinds of things definitely happen. I mean, we can't feature all the cases. This is the, the problem with the limitations of documentary, I would say. The medium is that you can only do just this much with a subject that warrants so much contextual background. But a lot of the cases are political in nature, where Khadim Hussein Rizvi or others rally up specific causes to condemn someone, for example, in the case of Asya Bibi, whom the court, the Sharia court, found not guilty eventually, even the Supreme Court did. But that was still not good enough for Khadim Hussein Rizvi. He had used this case as a rallying call to gather everyone around and condemn this poor Christian woman. One thing I want to ask you about is she has a run-in with some of the other women in her village. Basically, they say because they refused to share a drinking glass with her, that she spoke poorly of the prophets. She says no, they wanted to convert her, and she refused that. And that's why they were angry, uh, made these claims. The actual accuser is a man. When he actually spells out what they are claiming she said, you not only bleep out the words, you obscure his mouth completely. You can actually, in many cases, show us the supposed evidence. You can't show us photographs. Of, what, what's the challenge there as a filmmaker where you can't actually show a lot of what's at stake? We had to make the editorial call that even though we're showing this abroad, and by the way, we've shown this in Pakistan too, but myself, I live between the U.S., between L.A. and Karachi, and I go back and forth. My house and family are still there. A lot of the crew that I work with are all based there. So we don't want to be ending up being accused of blasphemy, which we would be because if we basically didn't obscure his mouth or didn't bleep things, basically we would have been perpetuating a message that's blasphemous for the mass audience. Even if it was being used as an illustrative example. In fact, the guy who accused Asya Bibi was spelling out for us what she had allegedly said. He hadn't even directly spelled it out. He had prefaced it by saying it was as if she said this and implied it towards the prophet. So it was an indirect recollection, but even that was enough to potentially be charged for 295C. So I didn't want him to be charged for blasphemy. Those were the limitations we had to deal with. We had to do it because at the end of the day, my goal is to move the needle back home to a certain extent and have people open up and talk about this, not be so scared. And I feel that by making this film, I'm doing that. At least I'm doing my part of doing that. That's not to say that all of us haven't dealt with like crazy online trolls and crazy digital <laughs> death threats and things as one does on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. We certainly have, even just beyond filmmaking. I think this is a, a moral thing for me. That's what motivates me as a storyteller. Speaking of that, one of the things I think you do so well is show how kind of the problems spread out from the accused much more widely. And the justification here is often given that since this is Islamic law, it has no mercy. Anyone who advocates changing it is themselves guilty uh, of at least, uh, if not the full crime, then something like the crime. The family members, even the Christian community. Again, I, I want to focus completely on Christian community. Thank you for that reminder. But it just spreads out. A government ministers. It seems like a, it's something is much more at stake here than an individual person. Yes, absolutely. All I could do, and it was so important for me to actually show how this specific law is being used by politicians to gain power and how they are able to do that. 
even, for example, one of the candidates that's running under the Lekbeck party ticket is this lawyer who himself admits, I'm not really that religious. And <laughs> this is a good platform to run. And, and then, so that's what he was doing. He clearly admits that. That was important for us to show, to illustrate the different machinations of the blasphemy law and how it works. And it's in a way to kind of deconstruct that myth. A lot of my work is deconstructing that like monolith of Islam, the way it's viewed in nonfiction and the way it's viewed in nonfiction in the Western world. Keep in mind, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Representation even in the nonfiction doc world, it's relatively new. We didn't get to tell our own stories. It was always some BBC correspondent in a weird beige jacket landing up in Lahore or Islamabad, working with the local fixers for like a week or two parachuting in and then just jumping out. That's it. That's what would the extent of the, the storytelling was. And I think now, thank God, People are a little more mindful about maybe working with indigenous people who know what's at place, giving you a more nuanced story. And so that's what I wanted to do with this. I think for the longest time, Muslims and Islam was so vilified. And I wanted to tell this truth about some of the stories that was used to vilify them. So blasphemy was something that was always presented in a wide breaststroke. It's like, look at these crazy people. They all hate Christians and they're all I'm like, no, no, no. Look, some of the biggest advocates for the Christians in Pakistan or even for amending the law are Muslims themselves. In fact, my entire team making this film were all Muslims. We felt it was necessary because we have progressive ideology and that's what we want to follow and push through in our country. And that's what we did. We also want to take back our faith or religion. And I'm not necessarily that religious myself, but... I think it's unfair that the mouthpiece gets to be this guy, Khadim Hussein Rizvi, who, by the way, died uh, of COVID in 2021. Speaking of which, let's focus a little bit on, I'm going to say her name wrong, but Gulalai Ismail. Gulalai Ismail, yeah. She runs an NGO who's working against religious extremism and Talibanization. She's Muslim. She feels that her troubles obviously aren't coming from her religion. It's coming from that she's speaking up to the government. And she comes from a family, her father too, suffered for his progressive politics. She's one of my heroes in the film, I'll say it. Can you talk about some of her struggles? So she's been in the States since the end of the film, and she's now here, and she was doing her master's in Colorado, and I think she's moving to D.C. or New York, last I heard. I mean, I'm still in touch. And she's amazing. I should point out that beyond just that, she also works very much for women's rights and women's empowerment, and that's a lot of what her NGO concentrates on. She comes from a, a Muslim background, a, a Islamic family. I think her, she defines herself more as a humanist, religiously. In her case, she was also accused of being a blasphemer. But technically, she committed no blasphemy. And just to give you a little bit of context, Gulalai Ismail was an advocate for women's rights, for progressive politics. She runs this NGO. Obviously, she has a huge social media following. And I think one of the things that she was advocating for was for basically some women's self-empowerment to decide whether they want to wear the hijab or not. It should be their own personal choice or something. And this guy kind of hijacked that messaging and said that this woman is trying to corrupt all our women and is, are basically, quote unquote, raising a 
bunch of whores and going against Islam and just kind of really bigotry message. And, and this is what's so fascinating is there's parallels between that kid and like Tucker Carlson trolls, literally. He was actually not even honest about what she was saying. And then he just basically added the tag of she's basically a blasphemer. Now, that's not the case, because if you go into the actual technical blasphemy is a very specific thing. You desecrate the Quran or you speak ill of the prophet. And I'm talking about 295C. There's other provisions of the blasphemy law, but when you talk specifically about 295C, when you can be put to death, that is the specific provision. She hasn't said anything about the prophet or the Quran. She was talking about like, women's empowerment. So anyway, this guy, he, he makes up these frivolous charges. He, he starts rallying a whole thing against her. So much so that all these people, all these guys show up and actually lead a protest against her where thousands of people show up. It's become so dangerous that she has to go into hiding for a little bit. And then he also charges her on these false blasphemy charges. What she does and why she was so important was that she decided not to take it lying down. Because so many people are falsely accused of blasphemy to just be like intimidated. She's like, no, screw this. I'm going to take this guy to court and charge him for basically making false blasphemy allegations against me. She basically started doing that, was pushing and making some progress to it. And then unfortunately, she eventually had to leave the country because of her own activism, basically her messaging was then disrupting the establishment, the military establishment, specifically in, in Pakistan, and then they got her to leave. It's really in interesting because, well, I don't think you're equating the two. There's some interesting visual ways and, and ways in which her fate and Rizzi's fate are, are kind of tied. So he eventually is, his house is raided by the government. He's charged with treason and terrorism. And then her house is raided by the government and she's charged with sedition and anti-state propaganda, both visually, this kind of security cam video, and in terms of things they're charged with. And you begin to think, wait a minute, you know, it's part of a bigger game on the part of the Pakistan government. Look, the Pakistani government, especially in some ways, as you can say, it's a puppet government. Many people have said we are run by a military, and we are, right? We are not technically under military rule, but we kind of are, right? They really do call the shots. And they use people like Khadim Hussein Rizvi. They suddenly will overnight turn him into like a successful person with a huge following, totally underhandedly being supported by the military. And they use these as assets, strategic assets to kind of keep their people in power, keep Imran Khan in power, for example, right? And then when they're done with them, they're done with them. And then you get charged with treason, <laughs> you know? And then you get rid of them. So that's very much part of the course and historically what has happened in Pakistan establishment and military. That in itself is its own documentary and its own thing, but certainly. Yeah, the biggest difference being that Rizvi got to stay in Pakistan and Galali had to flee, as did Asya. You have a shot of Galali on the high line in York. They had to go. They are not allowed to stay. Khadim Hussein Rizvi basically publicly apologized and basically had to do a huge grandstanding placating the establishment in the military. Basically, a lot of his teeth were removed. He ended up staying. Gulalai still wanted to stay true to her cause and still continues to be engaged actively in Pakistan and politics and activism in Pakistan, except she has to do it from here. So she had to leave and they sent her in exile.
since you finished your work, there's been a further expansion of the blasphemy laws in January of this year. As I understand it, they extend protections that were afforded the prophet to his family, his wives, his early associates. And while this may seem a little vague, some people think that this, in some ways, is positioning against Shia, the Shia branch of Islam, which would, may be somewhat critical of some of the early associates of Muhammad. You see, some of these provisions and things are made in, in this arena, for example, to placate certain crazy right-wing groups. I by the, we come from a Shia family myself. We are technically a minority, a minority sect of uh, Muslims in Pakistan, Sunni being the majority. So they expanded some of the blasphemy laws so that you, you can't actually insult some of the other historical figures. And exactly as you rightfully point out, many people think that this is being done to target some of the Shia community, to kind of silence them and to silence some of their theological leaders, some of their political parties and things to, again, deal with power. It's very much part of the course, like using the blasphemy law, not really to preserve the sanctity of the prophet. It's really being used for political ambitions of fanatical despots. That's what it is. And that's what I try to show. Thank you for being here today. And thanks for sharing these stories and really weaving them into a much bigger narrative, getting up these much bigger issues. And thanks for the courage of you and your crew for telling these stories. I know it can be dangerous. And I'm wondering what you're working on next. I'm just in development on uh, two projects that I'm trying to get off the ground, like everyone else. And the most recently, I, I did a series for Netflix where I was one of the EPs on a series called Turning Point, 9-11 and the War on Terror. I got to work with Luminant Pictures and, and, and Brian Knappenberger, who was the director on the series and, and show creator. It was an anthology series on Netflix that kind of looks at the biggest historical moments in uh, world history, revisits them, and basically gets a point to go dig deeper into what the accepted narrative is. So, for example, we did 9-11 and the war on terror the last 20 years up until the American withdrawal. In fact, we were in Afghanistan. We were one of the last documentary crews they're filming during the American withdrawal. And we look at how we got to 9-11, how it happened, and what had happened in the last 20 years. And why I was so excited to work on that project was that 9-11 has always been historically told, mostly from the CIA or from the military apparatus in the U.S. or from the leaders here in America. Here was a chance to actually speak to the leaders of Al-Qaeda and Taliban and other people involved on the so-called other side and see what their point of view was about 9-11 and the aftermath. And we did that. We featured their voices as well to give you a much more nuanced and 360 view of the problem. So I worked on that and I've been since then working on other series, which inshallah come out next year. Thanks again, Mo. This is great work and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you don't think gets the attention that it deserves? There's so many, but something that really comes to my mind is a documentary short called All That Perishes at the Edge of Land. And it's made by a fellow Pakistani filmmaker, Hiran Nabi. It's just a gorgeous lyrical piece of filmmaking. And it blurs the line between straight up documentary or more like a 
impressionistic, almost like an installation art piece type thing, I want to say. Something you'd see in a museum. I just love it. I think it's great. Mm -hmm.